0: This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Andy Johnson. The title of today's podcast is called What Happened, Full Colon, The Lesson. And this is going to be a part of the book I'm writing, being and becoming teachers of writing, or teachers of reading, a meaning-based approach. Now, a little recap. Yesterday, in my undergraduate literacy methods class, I experiment experimented with an activity I'd never tried before. Here I wrote a short chapter where I described some of the negative behaviors I was seeing in class and my perceptions or how I was interpreting them in my head. And in this chapter, I modeled the five-step problem-solving process used to solve problems. In the idea-generating stage, I indicated how professors and teachers sometimes interpret, or misinterpret, behaviors. I wanted students to get a sense for how I was interpreting the behaviors, knowing that my interpretations were likely not accurate in all cases, and that was true. They weren't accurate at all. (laughs) And I put this in the context of a total literacy experience activity, an activity I hope they are able to use in their future classrooms. Now, my purpose for doing this was fourfold. First, I wanted to teach and demonstrate an authentic literacy activity. Second, I wanted to teach and demonstrate how literacy can be used across the curriculum. Third, I wanted to demonstrate the teacher reflection process. An effective teacher is a reflective teacher. And fourth, and most importantly, I wanted to get some ideas for the changes that I could make to get my class back on track. I'm responsible. I had gotten off track and that was my fault. So in this chapter slash podcast, I'll describe the outcome. And I think the experiment was successful. (coughs) Excuse me. But it was successful in ways that I hadn't anticipated. Here's the thing. Honesty usually begets honesty. And honesty with good intent begets good things. Had my students and I not been honest with each other, there would not have been change. And clearly, There are some things that I need to do differently, and that's good. So, the big lesson. The big lesson here is not what I learned from my students. Rather, it is that I learned from my students. And the big lesson beyond the big lesson is that when teaching from your highest place, the teacher and the student are one. When you're teaching from your highest place, Learning goes both ways, like electrons in an alternating current wire. That is, you're learning from your students, and your students are learning from you. Now, teaching from your highest place doesn't mean that you're always teaching most effectively. But usually you are, but sometimes you're not. We all have lessons that don't go just right, and that's okay, If you've never failed, you haven't tried enough things. Failure is an important part of success. But when teaching from your highest place, you're teaching with good intent. This means you're teaching from a place of humility, caring, and compassion, not ego. You're teaching from love. Ouch! I said the word, love. Now let's take a look at the word love. But did you ever think you'd see that word in a college textbook about reading instruction or in a podcast about reading instruction? And I admit, I was a little uncomfortable when it first came out my fingers and slipped onto the page. Right away, I wanted to pull it back. I started looking for another word like kindness, compassion, care. But these just didn't get to where I wanted to go. Love is a powerful word. But if you're uncomfortable with that word, we can use the term unconditional positive regard. There. Does that make you feel better? They're relatively similar. With love or unconditional positive regard, you seek to nurture and give to yourself, to others, and to your environment without conditions. Love or unconditional positive regard is first a disposition or a state of mind that manifests itself into action. Now let's take a look at secrets, vampires, and lies. I had no plans to write about secrets, vampires, and lies when I started out. And like the word love, this part of my podcast and chapter just slipped out of my fingers and onto the page. The secret. First, I want to tell you the secret. You may think you're learning how to teach reading in this book and podcast, and this may be so on the surface level, but on the deep level, you're really learning how to teach your students life. Reading good books, talking about good books, writing our stories, listening to our stories and the stories of others is life. Helping students to use literacy to find out who they are and what they may become is helping them become alive. Teaching students to develop their full literacy potential is bringing them fully to life. And teaching students to be and become literate is life-giving. Now, we're not here to just teach children to sound out words. That would not be life-giving. We're here to help them be and become literate. And to be and become literate is to use reading and writing for authentic purposes. And we can't let the phonics penguins, the number monkeys, and the educational overlords distract us from this. Now let's take a look at vampires. Vampires are real. Yes, they are. They seek to suck the life out of us. In education, the vampires try to suck the life out of us, through their top-down standards, their mindless mandates, and their really silly laws related to skills-based reading instruction. They seek to make teachers merely technicians on an assembly line who mindlessly implement standardized curriculum and obediently follow the dictates of the educational overloads. The educational overlords don't want teachers to think. They only want them to follow directions. And they don't want students to think, only to respond to letter stimuli. The educational overlords see the world of education through the scratched and distorted lens of standardized tests and profits. And the educational overlords in Minnesota who assign standards to teaching teacher education courses would have me teach you lies. For example, one of the Minnesota standards for my course is that you must have knowledge of the foundations of reading processes, good, knowledge of the development, and knowledge of instruction. You must have this. You simply must, they say. And I say, absolutely. Specifically, you must have knowledges of these things. Absolutely. But who defines reading processes? It's not as you would have us believe. Now, let's look. Uh, they want me to teach you some knowledge of phonological and phonemic awareness. We're going to look just at that. They want me to teach you this. Quote, The ways in which reading achievement is related to phonological and phonemic awareness, including the ability to recognize word boundaries, to rhyme, and to blend, segment, substitute, and delete sounds in words. Now, to teach you this would be to lie. These people of the lie are asking me to lie to you, to teach you the lie. Yes, there is a correlation between phonological awareness of which phonemic awareness is a subset and reading achievement. They correlate or appear together. This does not mean that one thing causes another. Correlation does not infer causation. Phonological and phonemic awareness do not cause reading achievement. Now, if you were to spend a lot of time teaching phonological and phonemic awareness, yes, students will score higher on tests of phonological and phonemic awareness. Absolutely. But would the results be persistent? That means would they last? And more importantly, would the results transfer to authentic reading situations in which students are asked to create meaning with print. Both the National Reading Panel Report and I would say no. And would teaching these things be more effective than reading a lot of books and writing our stories and learning skills within this context? There's a good chunk of research that says no. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't teach these things to your students or use these activities. I don't want anybody to pull this out of context. These are important but small parts of early literacy instruction. The problem is that the overemphasis on these small parts gets students focusing on small parts, on individual words, instead of creating meaning. In reality, we never encounter single words floating in space outside a context. We always see words in the context of something, usually a sentence. But even words on signs and labels are in the context of a place or product. Context is an important part of recognizing words and creating meaning. Another thing they want me to teach you is this, the instructional progression of phonological awareness. For example, words, syllables, onsets, and rhymes, and phonemes. Now, this, too, is a lie. There is no instructional progression of when or in what order these things should be taught, or even if they should be taught at all. They just made this up. Show me a bit of supporting research that might indicate that teaching these things has a causal effect on reading achievement, or more importantly, is more effective than reading lots of good books and writing our stories with skills instruction provided in this context. Is that more effective than teaching them in a specific order? Instead, we should be teaching these things as students are ready for them. Imagine that. Human beings aren't standardized products. We don't insert the same skills in the same order and expect the same result. That's just nonsense. Now, early on, when children are learning concepts about print in pre-K... They do need to know what a word is. That's called concepts of print, the concept of a word. Yes, they need to be able to see that combinations of squiggle things on the page. They need to know that's a word and point to it and know that one group of squiggle things is separate from another group of squiggle things. They should also know that the combination of squiggle things means something. They need to know that sentences contain these squiggle things, separate ones, and they're called words. They need to know that words have sound parts called syllables, but they don't need to know what a syllable is. Rather, they should know that words have sound parts. For example, silly has two sound parts, sil e. This gets them ready to put letters to sound when writing, and to see and hear parts of words when using phonics to recognize words. However, there is no instructional progression of these things. There's no research to support the proposition that teaching the instructional progression of syllables has any causal effect on anything other than the profits of the educational overlords. Now, I feel a bit like Jacob wrestling with the angels, with the angel. These are just some of the lies I've been asked to teach you. And why does the state of Minnesota want me to lie to you? I will teach you these things. Yes, I will. But at the same time, I have a moral obligation to you and the students you will someday teach to show you why these things are lies. So I've been wrestling with an angel this semester. I have a moral dilemma. I want to help my students develop their full teaching potential so that they in turn are able to help their students develop their full literacy potential. And I want to get them ready to take a stupid teacher licensure test, which has no predictive validity, that they might someday have to take. Now, can I do this and not lie at the same time? One of the reasons why I haven't been very effective so far this semester is this. I've been asked to lie. But wrestling with the angel is a reason and not an excuse. It's simply one of the reasons I've lost my way this semester. A reason, however, is not an excuse. I am responsible I've forgotten some of the lessons, and I'll talk about these below. Now, if you're not a student in my class, you may want to end the podcast here, but there may be some things that you might take from this. What I learned from my students through this activity. Now, I knew these things that I'm going to tell you about. I really did, but it's easy for lessons to be forgotten or to be pushed to the back. Often in your teaching journey and your life journey, and these are the same, you'll find that you need to remember the lessons, relearn the lessons, or relearn lessons at higher levels. So nine lessons. One, keep the PowerPoints short and concise. For God's sakes, I had sometimes over a hundred PowerPoints. I can't believe I did this. What was I thinking? Well, I was thinking of the online Dr. Johnson where I have to keep the audiences engaged by constantly moving slides and presenting only one idea on the slide. I forgot. Number two, Jerry the joke cow must never disappear. I give students a small stuffed cow. I ask one student to throw it at me sometime during the class when they need a break and we stop whatever we're doing and I tell some really bad dad jokes. And I sometimes laugh at the jokes because they're so bad. So no matter how I'm feeling, that joke cow must always be there. And maybe Donna the dance dog and Sherry the share bear and Yogi (laughs) the yoga bear. These little things keep the joy in class. And they also give students a much needed brain break. There must always be little bits of joy in my class. Number three, too much lecture. For goodness sakes, I was breaking my own rules about the length of time that humans can stay engaged. 15 minutes is about right. And besides, this class starts at four o'clock after a long day of other classes. I told my students, there's a reason why we usually don't have a reading class at 2.30. 2.30. Too much lecture. I'll provide shorter bits of information. Number four, too much group work. If I do group work, I'll make it a structured cooperative learning activity where each member has an assigned role and there's a specific product they must come up with. That's group work is different than cooperative learning. So I'll make sure I do only cooperative learning. Number five, I need to be more basic I was getting too far ahead of where my students are at. I was providing big-picture ideas, thinking that might that these ideas might be appropriate for my graduate class, but I need to provide more basic ideas and point out exactly which standards I'm addressing. And I'm even going to look at some of the Minnesota ELA standards and show how they will have to address them and how they can do this. Number six, I hate the cutting book, Cunningham book. I really do. But I felt pressure to include it because the educational overlords have put incredibly bad standards related to phonics, spelling, and phonemic awareness into our accreditation. And I have to address them in order to keep our accreditation. Now, the Cunningham book has a heaping helping of phonemic awareness, spelling, and phonics ideas, and these are really good. Some of these strategies are really good, and I'll make sure that I teach them, but the book is poorly organized and adds to the confusion. I should have just pulled out the strategies and taught them where they made sense. And of course, now I feel incredibly badly that I had this as a required text and students had to pay 70 bucks for this book. That's horrible. Seven, Wednesday discussions. I give students a set of prompts to respond to each week. I always ask a personal question and a content-related question. The personal questions are designed to build a community and they allow me to see my students. The content-related questions enable me to see how students are processing certain concepts. Past classes have said that this was an important element. However, I'll consider scrapping this for an in-class activity. Number eight, groups. Each week, I have students sit in different groups. I randomly assign them on Monday, and they sit in these groups. Some, however, want to sit with friends. Now, I can't change this. It's something I want my students to bring into their classroom. It's important that students work with all students in the class. And number nine, monkey day. We will have monkey day in our class. This is the Reading Instruction Show. I've been your host, Dr. Andy Johnson.